1: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, August 23rd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The next Democratic debate, which will take place in Houston, currently includes 10 candidates. You got the B-list, Biden, Booker, Buttigieg, Beto, and Bernie... And then, among the other five, three female senators, Warren Klobuchar and Harris, plus Julian Castro and Andrew Yang. Now, Tulsi Gabbard is close. Oh, so close. She raised the money from enough people, but she hasn't polled at 2% enough. I mean, she has polled at 2% a couple times, and in certain polls, she's polled at 2% consistently, but the DNC doesn't count all the polls. They decided, here are the polls we do count, here are the polls we don't count. And one reason they don't count all the polls is that, don't know if you noticed this, there are so many polls. Everyone says, oh, these days everyone has a podcast. No, everyone has a poll. And by everyone, uh, plus or minus 85%. Here's an op-ed from Michael Tracy, who is a journalist, a Tulsi fan, an anti-imperialist. A Russian hoax was really a hoax guy. He wrote an op-ed, Gabbard victimized by DNC's dubious debate criteria. The absurdity mounts. A South Carolina poll published August 14th by the Post and Courier placed Gabbard at 2%. One might have vainly assumed that the newspaper with the largest circulation in a critical early primary state would be an approved sponsor per the dictates of the DNC. But it is not curious. Now, he also picks apart the fact that she polled at 2% in a New Hampshire poll, that the DNC doesn't count, and his ire is raised. All of this might seem quite compelling until you take, I don't know, a quarter of a step back and realize we are talking about, not just talking about, railing against the injustice of applying a criteria that allows in any candidate who hits 2% in a decent number of legitimate polls. Not any poll, just the certain polls that they talked about beforehand everyone knew which polls. Gabbard's problem isn't that the DNC has bad criteria or overly strict criteria. It's that they have criteria. Michael Tracy at one point argues a poll that places a candidate at 1.4% could be considered non-qualifying, but a poll that places a candidate at 1.5% is considered qualifying. He's trying to underline an absurdity, but really he just pointed out to me, oh, So when you say she's not polling at 2%, you're really saying she's not polling even at 1.5%. But you know what? After all this, I want Tulsi Gabbard in the debates. And I will tell you why. It's that Bashar al-Assad was my optometrist. He is a wonderful, wonderful man, and I want him rehabilitated in the public's mind. No, it's not. It's because we have 10 people in the debate now. If we get an 11th, we get two nights and each night we'll have five or six candidates. So the average time that each candidate will get to speak won't be the eight minutes of the first two debates or the 10 minutes of the CNN debates. It might be, I don't know, 20 minutes. You can actually get candidates getting into more detail, getting into more topics. You can even flesh out. Okay, can I finish? You can even lay out in some detail. Okay, fine. So right now. It looks like either Tulsi Gabbard or Tom Steyer might make the debate, thus pushing the field to 11. I prefer Gabbard, an elected official, to Steyer, a billionaire buying his way in. Kirsten Gillibrand also has an outside shot of qualifying. She has no ties to the Syrians. She hasn't spent millions to put herself in the forefront of a recall effort. Oh, and she also is my senator from my state, but a longer shot than some opponents with longer resumes. But the Dem Debate's not about resumes. They're about polls and donors, but only some polls and at least 130,000 donors. And by the way, those select polls have to have the onerous 2% requirement, which like milk isn't exactly whole, but it is too rich to be considered skimmed off the top. On the show today, I spiel about the Koch brother. You know which Koch brother, the dead one, threat or menace. But first, It is our part two of an interview with Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley. Perhaps you remember and felt a little cliffhanged when I said this yesterday. So if you ask, and they have asked every presidential candidate, of which you almost were one, but then said, you know, I'd like to heal the Senate, good luck with that, by the way, and we'll talk about that. Indeed, we do. I do want to say this. The senator mentions uh, the Koch brothers. Obviously, we recorded this before the news of the death of David Koch. And you know that because you heard part one yesterday. I don't know. Maybe you thought that we just had Senator Jeff Merkley overnight for 24 hours crashing on a couch in the lobby. Don't worry, Senator. That's just tens and He straightens the office up at night. Anyway, it was recorded before we knew David Koch was dead. But after a pretty detailed account of the ways he distorted democracy, was fully understood. Me, Senator Jeff Merkley, up now. So you were in Iowa earlier this year. You've thought about it hard. You maybe saw that I think like 17% of the Democratic caucus is running for president. You said, my time better spent trying to reform the Senate. So of the seven senators running, Elizabeth Warren is in favor of eliminating the filibuster. The other six articulate pretty good reasons why they're not. Cory Booker talks about vulnerable communities. Kirsten Gillibrand talked to me about abortion rights um, with Out a filibuster, we'd have something close to a wall, but what's your stance on the filibuster?
2: It has to go. Just period, because uh, you used
1: to say talking filibuster. That used to that's, be your stance.
2: That's, that's right. I, I, was, I talked to many senators about what was within the range of possibility, and many relayed, as you have just now, that they're, they want to keep uh, this uh, barrier to action in place as a defensive strategy against a Republican president and a Republican House and Senate. Uh, but there's a problem with that. Realize this. Top two goals of the Republicans— One was tax cuts for the wealthy. You know, raid the national treasury and give the money to the richest people. Check. Second, Supreme Court.
1: Check. Check.
2: (laughs) They changed the rules on both of those to do them by simple majority. Why don't we have the guts to pass our agenda by simple majority for the people? The Senate has become biased in favor of the powerful over the people. The Republicans' top goals... Simple majority, the Democrats' goals: healthcare, housing, education, living wage jobs. Take on equality. Take on uh, carbon pollution and climate chaos. Super majority, the Republicans have a check on it. It empowers uh, the um, the Koch brothers' uh, uh, effort to prevent us from addressing this major damage to the, the globe that's happening under our watch. So it has to go. And I do have responses to the, the individual questions. For example. You raise the question of reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. Yes, Yes, we're all concerned about that. But the Republicans don't really want to address that through the Senate because they know there would be a tremendous backlash. So their strategy is to address it through the courts. Well, the courts are simple majority. So they have a simple majority pathway to address it already without the type of backlash that would occur if they tried to do it through the House and Senate.
1: Right. Um, now, Bernie Sanders, and you're the only senator to endorse him, he still favors the filibuster. Can you talk him out of it? I'm working on him. Yeah? And did you change—I've Did I've heard you articulate something other than filibuster has to go, which is exactly what you said to me. You talked a little bit about in certain constitutional matters the filibuster would have to go, but now you're just saying, blanket, we shouldn't have a filibuster.
2: So. Uh, I'm experimenting with what we can get to. And the most important piece of legislation is the For the People Act. Mm-hmm. Tom Udall and I are the leads on this in the in the U.S. Senate. Uh, it is the same as H.R. 1. Uh, it takes on gerrymandering, voter suppression, dark money, three fundamental corruptions of our constitutional system that really have flowed uh, from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court just a couple weeks ago gave the green light to extreme partisan gerrymandering, which is outrageous. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court could figure out how to take on gerrymandering. The U.S. Supreme Court couldn't. They gutted the Voting Rights Act to allow voter intimidation and voter suppression. If you believe in a democratic republic, you believe in voter empowerment, not voter suppression. And our Constitution was based on the idea of distributed power among the voters. Jefferson Mm -hmm. said, without this, you won't have laws that reflect the will of the people. Citizens United Supreme Court decision is the exact opposite concentration of power, allowing mega billionaires to do hundreds of millions of dollars of, of campaign uh, influence. And uh, they basically become the masters of the Senate, uh, yeah, are the Koch brothers.
1: They, they say jump, and Mitch McConnell says, how high? To change a filibuster vote, is it like uh, uh, establishing cloture back in the civil rights days? No, let's let's talk
2: about how the Republicans changed it on tax breaks for the wealthy. Right. Uh, they had their parliamentary parliamentarian issue an advisory opinion saying that, oh, no, this can be done by simple majority. Democrats decided not to challenge it because they didn't want to lock it in by a vote. On the other hand, it was locked in by precedent. Yeah. Uh, so... We could have a parliamentarian say, no, when it comes to defending your fundamental constitutional responsibilities for the voting process, the foundation of our democracy, that simple majority. All we have to do is parliamentarians say that or have a parliamentarian say the opposite and overrule
1: the parliamentarian with 51 votes. How many, what's your sense of the headcount on this issue? Not Who's good. with you? No, it's,
2: no, it's not good uh, now, but... When I talk to my colleagues and say, do you realize Republicans changed the rules for their top two priorities the simple majority? And are we not going are we going again disappoint the American people and not stand up for them by allowing Mitch McConnell to blockade us? They you, I see the gears turning their heads and they're going, Yeah, yeah well that's there you got a point there. Mm-hmm. So and uh, I I do think that there is a growing appetite to be able to be an effective body. And this idea that a supermajority was the design of the Senate, that is absolutely historically wrong. It started in
1: 1917, right? With Woodrow Wilson. That's
2: right. (laughs) That's right. It evolved from the courtesy of hearing people's opinions. Right. And even after 1917, which was the issue of arming commercial ships and people being afraid of it pulling us into war, even after that, it was very, very rare. I was first around the Senate as an intern for Senator Hatfield in 1976. I never saw a supermajority vote. You can't spend one day on the floor of the Senate today without seeing the requirement for Mm -hmm. a supermajority vote. The Constitutional Congress had a supermajority requirement. It paralyzed it, and the founders explicitly did not put... A supermajority on Congress for that reason, and Hamilton in the Federalist Papers talks about how utterly destructive it would be to have a supermajority
1: yeah so let and me they did just, it and they set it in place, and for a hundred years one hundred and fifteen years there were none there was none, so I think as my colleagues become more familiar
2: with what the Republicans right, right. have done and the founders' design and their desire to actually Affect the big issues affecting America, there's a chance that they will gravitate towards action. I certainly hope so because right now what you're seeing is people aren't running for the Senate in part. Because it is a broken institution.
1: Well, it also seems like I, I've I've talked to Senator Bradley and I've heard interviews with older senators. So you were there when Hatfield was there, a giant of the Senate, and Teddy Kennedy, and they were able to get things done. And also I get the sense that whatever the Senate version of fun was, like civic fun, not that not some bad kind of fun, they had it. There was a sense of accomplishment, and they had Almost a good time getting things done, and now I don't sense anyone in the Senate is having a good time. There is no joy in Mudville.
2: Yeah, uh, the um, uh, the Senate at that point was a normal work week. Uh, you did not have to fundraise day and night as a Democrat because of the Koch brothers being able to write a check for ten million dollars on a you know in a five minute period. Right. People had evenings and weekends for normal life. They went back to their home states uh, occasionally, not every weekend. Uh, Families were here, spouses and children reinforced a sense of community. Uh, It was a very different institution, and this has happened within my lifetime that we have seen this change. Uh, I have thought uh, if we were to simply eliminate reimbursements for plane tickets uh, so people would only go home. Uh, once a month or yeah. once every two months, we'd h- have the ability to have more of a normal work week. We'd have more families in D.C. But I quite I tell you that ship has sailed. We're not returning to, to that uh, because now the people back home expect you to be home uh, essentially every weekend.
1: When we when you look at the Democratic field, including your seven colleagues who are running, is part of the reason you didn't run because you said to yourself, you know, in general, my views are well represented among these people and all twenty of them.
2: Uh, I didn't run, you know, it was, this is a tough decision. Mm -hmm. Like when I watched the debates, I'm like, no, they didn't answer that right. Here's the real
1: story. (laughs) I'm like, I want to be up there. But could you get it in 30
2: seconds? (laughs) (laughs) It's easier to do from the sidelines than it is when you're on the stage. I I concede that. Uh, the, my sense was that whoever wins and a, a Democrat has to win, we cannot tolerate Four more years of hate and division uh, the and just the risks to everything we care about in the world. But whoever wins, they will not be able to function without a functional Senate. And I feel that my life history of having been around the Senate going back to the mid-70s, and then working for Congress in the 80s, like, I saw it work. Mm -hmm. And most senators serving today have not seen the Senate work. And they think this is almost the way it's been designed. And so I feel a moral obligation to be engaged in that conversation, to try to restore it. Yeah. Quite frankly, I'm not so optimistic, but I have to try. And I have to try to rally my colleagues to this fight. Even my Republican colleagues are deeply frustrated by the inability to put amendments on the floor. So I'm talking to several of them about a bipartisan right to amend. Yeah. Take on Mitch McConnell, who refuses to allow amendments.
1: They would have to be going against Mitch McConnell. They would have that to be willing be... to
2: take him on. But yeah. they are, I mean, privately, they are frustrated. Uh, and, I mean, Mitch McConnell, when he was out of out of the majority leader, when he's minority leader, he said, when I'm majority leader, it will be very different. It will be an open amendment process. Right. That was, of course, a, well,
1: not accurate. (laughs) That was a whopper. One of the theories of a functional Senate is something akin to bipartisanship. So Joe Biden floats this ideal... Idea that, you know, once we as the Democrats take the majority, the fever will break and they'll see the wisdom of working with us. In the book, uh, you don't write this off entirely. You wanted to, you said to yourself, maybe I could speak to Jeff Sessions, Jeff to Jeff, as you say it, though he's a Jeff Beauregard and you're a Jeff Allen, so it's not exactly the same. But how much is making the Senate functional based on the spirit of bipartisanship and how much is it based on structural changes that might actually be not at all bipartisan to get? get them enacted.
2: So on modest things, you can absolutely work in a bipartisan fashion today. Right. Uh, for example, I just worked with Mitch McConnell. And I talked to him five times over the Department of Agriculture's desire to eliminate uh, citizen Conservation Corps facilities in Oregon and Kentucky. I worked with Mitch McConnell to legalize hemp because it's an important issue to Kentucky and Oregon. Yeah. You, you can name almost any conservative uh, senator, and there's some project I've worked on them with. But when it comes to the things that become the national debate that are particularly focused on by a president, that changes. And the first thing I really saw about this in 2009 when I came to the Senate was uh, Frank Luntz had a memo. And the memo was whatever Democrats and Obama propose on health care will simply oppose it as a government takeover. Yeah. Not because it's a government takeover, because that's the most effective way to criticize it even if it's not true. And I went to the floor and gave a, one of my first speeches waving this around and saying, "Are you kidding me?" Did you think it was the
1: smoking gun and you were going to blow the cover off Yeah, the whole thing? absolutely. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I got I, it. It's I, all over. <laughs> I can't
2: believe this. Uh they're going they're saying yeah. that their strategy is to compromise the welfare of millions of Americans for political gain even when it means lying to the American people. I cannot believe this. This is wrong. This is unpatriotic. This is un-American. Uh, this is unproductive. Uh, this is going to hurt a lot of people. And you know what? The Republicans followed that script. Even though Obama adopted the Republicans' marketplace strategy,
1: yeah.
2: the, the exchange, right? The
1: heritage-tested uh, he, he Heritage Mitt Romney approach. care. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and
2: the Republicans still condemn. And here's the thing. Here's why—this is why Biden is wrong. Because Mitch McConnell, when he tried this strategy of absolute opposition— Many of us didn't think it would work. We thought the American people would condemn him for it. We thought his colleagues would condemn him for it. In the end, he made it work. He wrote it to the majority, and therefore, he has established among his his caucus the credibility of absolute obstruction, which is why if we leave the filibuster in place, there will be the next president. It will be a strategy of absolute Obstruction against a Democratic president. So if we are hamstrung by a supermajority, Mitch McConnell has as, basically as much power as minority leader as he has as majority leader.
1: And now the spiel. The richest New Yorker died today, and as you would expect from the demise of a very, 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 very rich New Yorker, The place of death was the Hamptons. The richest New Yorker didn't seem to me like a New Yorker, even though his name is inscribed on great cultural institutions that make this city the city, like Lincoln Center, the Museum of Natural History, New York Presbyterian Hospital. Gave over $1.2 billion in gifts. And for this, he was despised. I'd say rightly so, because giving away an estimated 2% of your fortune does not counteract the influence that you have on society as a whole. Here is how the New York Times describes the Koch brothers' influence. Analysts say the Koch brothers' money-fueled brand of libertarianism helped give rise to the Tea Party movement and strengthened the far right of a resurgent Republican party. True. True. Here's how NPR played David Koch's legacy. Quote, David Koch, billionaire who fueled a right-wing movement, dies at 79. A man-about-town philanthropist, he and his brother Charles, read a business colossus while furthering a libertarian agenda that reshaped American politics. Okay, those were the words on NPR.org. Here was how they led their segment, wherein they interviewed the New Yorker's Jane Mayer, who chronicled the costs that the Kochs visited on Civic Life.
0: Billionaire David Koch has died at the age of 79. David Koch, along with his brother Charles, poured their money into libertarian causes that gave rise to the Tea Party movement, which helped push the Republican Party to the right.
1: This was a time when journalists and the headline writers of obituaries faced the age-old conundrum of how much ill to speak of the dead I would say the newspapers mostly got the headlines right. They were adequate. CNN, David Koch, billionaire businessman and influential GOP donor dies. Wall Street Journal, who, by the way, loved the political initiatives of David Koch, wrote billionaire David Koch, who used his wealth to reshape U.S. politics, dies at 79. Washington Post, Opposite of the Wall Street Journal, they routinely and loudly invade against his initiatives, especially the role of dark money in politics, said David Koch, billionaire industrialist who influenced conservative politics, dies at 79. If anything, that was a little soft playing it. There was a time when it would have been just simply de to note the passing of a person who certainly had a demonstrable effect on politics in a fairly neutral way. The fact that we could demonstrate that that effect was a baleful effect would be further stuffed in the paragraphs. And I have to say the newspapers of today followed that pattern. The Obituaries all spent time chronicling what the effects of David Koch's activism were. And among them were climate denial, opposing government healthcare expansion, pollution, opacity, and in fact, an arms race and political donations, and the effort to roll back pretty much every regulation. So you add that all up, this is why my colleague Jordan Weissman of Slate tweeted, David Koch was a villain who devoted his wealth to further enriching himself and his fellow plutocrats while spinning us all toward environmental doom. I don't believe in an afterlife, but if there is one, I hope his soul suffers for eternity. Oh, what? So Jordan, if you believe in an afterlife, it has to be the heaven and helly one. Why can't it just be a nice neutral afterlife or the Buddha or reincarnation? You're very, very, very binary and Judeo-Christian with your possible afterlife scenarios. Here's how I see it. David Koch had a demonstrable, objective, ill effect by many, many empirically measurable ways on many, many Americans, maybe even most Americans. The Kansas Project denuded that state of resources and funds, threw it into chaos, skewed normal politicking, and was roundly rejected by voters. His brother also donated to Wichita State their basketball arena, so even, no, not even. But was David Koch evil? Was David Koch a villain? He led to some bad effects, but I would just say, if you want to call him a villain, that is fine. I don't think it's the best to do it in the headlines. Most of the newspapers didn't. They refrained. That's also fine. Let's also take account of the fact that he might have been a villain, but he was working within a system. He had accomplices. He had co-conspirators. And I, I have been wondering about this. Work this out with me here. If we tease out the implications of saying, David Koch, here's what you need to know, was the villainy, are we then saying that libertarian views are inherently immoral? It seems weird to say that, that to believe in this set of beliefs makes you an immoral person. So what is the step where belief or thought becomes immorality? With some thoughts, it's it's in the very thought itself, Nazi beliefs, the Proud Boys, just to hold those beliefs, I believe, makes you immoral but does being a libertarian do that? I don't think so. So then what's the difference? When you see those beliefs put into action, as the Koch brothers did more than anyone could possibly hope to in American society, and you see those actions hurting people, does that make you immoral? A lot of people would say yes, but maybe to give them the benefit of the doubt, they would say, well, society hasn't just been pushed hard enough, or a lot of the changes that we advocated for are having a positive effect. Just the negative effects are being known. At what point does belief make you immoral? Is it when that belief is paired with effectiveness? Is it when that belief is paired with power? You know, I always used to think that if Antonin Scalia were merely a panelist on the McLaughlin group, not a member of the Supreme Court, not only would that be better for all of us, I'd find him delightful. I like the way he thought. I just didn't like the way his thoughts became policies that affected me. So is that is that the point? Is that the point of immorality? What's the implication of that? Have your thoughts. Just make sure they don't leach into action. Are we confident enough to say that libertarian thought, which can mean a lot of things and can mean a lot more than the Koch brothers thought it meant. Yes, they did pursue some criminal justice initiatives. But of course, that was only after they got their massive wave of deregulation passed. And that's what hurt the environment. I don't know. Maybe they said, now it's time to care for the prisoners. I mean, these days, I'm often accused of being a bad person and having bad thoughts for such thoughts as not being sufficiently into nationalized healthcare. And if we catastrophize or vilify any thought 12 degrees different from our own than the thought nine degrees different from our own than any mere heterodoxy can quickly become the stuff of villainy. Anyway, what I'm saying is David Koch definitely fits the bill of villainy, but I don't know if it was for his thoughts. I think it was more for his actions. I'm just curious as to when that point occurs, when one's thoughts start identifying the thinker as a bad person? Is it when the thinker becomes a doer? Now, for the last few minutes, I've been circling around what the Koch brothers' thoughts were, and rather than having me summarize them, here's a clip from Charles Koch, who rarely gives interviews. He was talking to the podcaster Tim Ferriss, and Tim Ferriss asked him, what are the existential threats? AI, global warming, here's what Charles Koch said.
3: I think the biggest threats as they were for millennia up until the 18th century are top down the tyranny of experts the fatal conceit that a few smart people can go tell everybody how to live their lives and what we're finding we're working with these social entrepreneurs the ones who have good solutions micro solutions not macro solutions because they've lived through problems and they they work their way out of it and they know what works and are proving it every day that that's what we need as society as, as Hayek found in history that enables people to pursue their own interests in a way that is mutually beneficial and leads to peace and harmony. And these top-down solutions, all they do is create partisanship and and uh, and conflict, and that's what we see today in this country. Because it's politics is win-lose game. Working together to your mutual benefit is win-win, as opposed to win-lose. So we need to maximize the amount that we allow people to do to advance their interests in a way that benefits others.
1: Look, I don't think Charles Koch is lying. I think he honestly believes in the tyranny of bureaucrats or smarty pants or just anyone other than resourceful individuals. And I think a lot of people agree with him. I also don't think it's apparent on its face that if you believe in the threat of tyranny of so-called experts that you are necessarily on a collision course with society itself. And that is what the Kochs believe, or what the Koch believes and what one Koch believed. He had the means, he had the methods to pursue that belief, and the institutions of our democracy were unable to stop him. Or put another way, the institutions were eager to help him along, especially after he bent the institutions to his will. That's it for today's show. Pierre produces the gist. When he heard one of the Koch brothers died, he said, oh no, Pablo or Roberto. It's Pablo, by the way. Daniel Schrader also produces the gist. And 30 years ago, he was produced by Elizabeth Miles Schrader with an assist, big assist, from Philip Daniel Schrader. And Mrs. Schrader didn't just produce Daniel, also produced in the litter, Catherine, twinsies. Happy birthday. Your twenties are over, sir. They may have been marked by the slowest economic recovery of all time. Also, during your 20s, no-multi-camera sitcom won an Emmy. It's really good to put your 20s in the rear view, don't you think, based on these facts? And just consider what your 30s will hold. You'll be eligible to run for president in five years. You'll get cheaper insurance rates. That ABC show 30-something will start to have more resonance. And what's the yeah, we're closer to death, but that's only if you look at the actuarial tables. If we go by the doomsday clock, it's going to be a mass extinction event. So happy birthday and here's to at least 30 more. The gist. What did I say? At least at least 30. at least is a floor. Fine, 36 more. You Happy. Umpur Depurdu Peru, and thanks for listening.